Well, Jesus, he has some strong words for us as his disciples this morning about how we are to respond when we are opposed because we belong to him. When someone hurts us for his sake. And we're going to break this teaching that he gives us down here in Luke 6 into three simple headings. What are we commanded to do? How are we to do it? And why? What motivation do we have to respond to opposition as Christians, even harsh opposition, in this way? Come with me to verse 27. Luke 6, verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Uh, Jesus has come to the main body. We're coming midway through his sermon here, and he's already mentioned the issue of enemies to his disciples just back in verse 22. Have a look. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Jesus made it clear last week that the disciple who truly belongs to him, who is truly blessed, can expect to face serious opposition as we live with Jesus as Lord in a world that rejects him. And so we'll reject those who know and love and remain faithful to him in all things. It's one of the marks of being a true disciple, facing opposition. Or you've seen something of that in, in, in Luke's gospel. Just back in Luke 4, an entire synagogue tried to push Jesus off a cliff to his death because they didn't like what he had to be teaching, even though those were the very words of God. And that hostility, that kind of rejection, will continue not just for Jesus, but for his disciples who would follow him. And the governing idea that we're given here, how are we to respond as his disciples in those kinds of situations Love. Love your enemies. Let's just be clear on what kind of love Jesus means here. He doesn't mean warm, fuzzy feelings of desire and attachment. Oh, I really love you. We know what Jesus means here by love your enemies because he unpacks it for us. Carry on in verse 27. See what he goes on to say. I say to you here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus is talking about actions, not feelings of the heart. Now, if you're anything like me, I struggle to consistently do good to my own family. My wife can testify to that. I struggle to continually bless, that is, speak in a loving and constructive way to my friends. The pastoral team can testify to that. I struggle to pray, full stop. And here, Jesus is telling us, respond to the hatred, the cursing, the abuse of your enemies that you will face because you're my disciples with good works for their sakes. Blessing them with your words, praying for them. As Christians, we are to treat our enemies better than they deserve. And that is something that does not come naturally to us. No, when we're treated badly, we just want to defend ourselves, don't we? You hate me, then at best I will just disassociate myself from you. I don't really want to spend much more time with you. 
And you curse me, I'm going to curse you. You hit me, I'll hit you harder. When those KL bikers scream down the middle of the lanes when I'm stuck in a traffic jam out on Jalantun Razak, and they knock my wing mirror with great violence and don't even bother to apologize afterwards, I can tell you the first words out of my mouth towards them are not, Bless you, my son. (laughs) Jesus is setting a very, very high standard here for us as his disciples, as to how we are to love those who personally despise us for being Christians. We are to love our enemies in sacrificial, practical ways. Well, he doesn't leave us in the dark as to what this might look like. He gives us some specifics to bear in mind. He shows us how we might do this. And the first how involves humility. Look in verse 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Here, Jesus is picturing a disciple who's being viciously opposed, uh, being struck on the cheek in Jesus' day. That was about as personal as an insult could get. It was the first century way of telling someone, I really hate you. I despise you. Someone slapped you in this way, they were saying, you're filth in my eyes. And in response to that kind of personal insult, Jesus says, offer the other cheek as well. Now, not in the sense that we desire to be harmed again. Oh, oh, slap me more, please. I I really enjoy it. No. But we're to willingly endure further hostility, further slapping from them, if it means we can further serve them for their good. And Jesus gives us another example of an enemy who robs us And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Uh, The cloak in Jesus' day, that was the common outer garment that you wore. And the tunic here, well, that is just the only other layer of clothing you would wear under your cloak, between your cloak and your skin. So Jesus is saying, look, if someone steals your outer layer of clothing to keep you warm, don't resist when they take your inner loathing, the rest of your clothes, as well. Again, Jesus is telling us to remain vulnerable to our enemies. But this time, in terms of being willing to lose our possessions, our very basic necessities, the clothes off our back. It's very extreme, isn't it? Responding to hatred in incredible humility, seeking to serve our enemies, even if it puts us at further risk. Well, the second example Jesus gives us is just as extreme. The second how is charity. Look in verse 30. Verse 30. Jesus goes on, give to everyone who begs from you. Give to everyone who begs from you. We're to be charitable toward all people. Even those that we don't particularly like. The emphasis here is on that word everyone. Give to everyone. Everyone who begs from you, not in the sense of every single person out there, but in the sense of any kind of person out there. Now, that would have been a shock 
to the disciples as Jesus was teaching them. They lived in a society which was incredibly segregated. They were Jews, and they had little association with those who were not Jews, the Gentiles. In their minds, those whom they were to love, certainly those whom they were to give alms to, were their own people, their Jewish neighbors in destitution. Oh, let the, let the Gentiles, they can fend for themselves. Jesus says very different. His disciples are not to show partiality in terms of who they are to aid. And carrying on in verse 30, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Uh, Jesus, I think he's speaking about lending to others here because he mentions lending twice later in the verses as well as an expression of love. I think that's what he means here, lending resources. From the one who borrows from you, do not demand what they borrow back if they fail to repay. Now, lending resources was a very common activity in Jesus' day. Uh, Usually, if someone made a very serious promise, a vow, well, they would take something valuable, maybe their cloak or some livestock that was in their possession, and they would put it up as a pledge. I will make good on my vow, and if I don't, then this is forfeit. But sadly, it was commonplace for these deals to get very tricky. And even when a disciple made good on a promise, the benefactor didn't always repay the pledge in response. And normally, much hostility would ensue. And Jesus expects a radically different response from those who claim to know him. From the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Tells them to be charitable with those who take away their goods unlawfully. Don't insist on restitution in every circumstance. Here are two examples of what it means, as far as Jesus is concerned, for us to love our enemies. Responding to hatred with humility. Remaining vulnerable if we can serve our enemies for their good. Responding to cheating with charity. Being willing to part with what we have in order to further serve our enemies in love. Now, I don't want to take away the force of what Jesus is saying here. We will come back to that in a moment. But what we mustn't also do is be irresponsible in the way that we apply these examples, as some, I believe, have in the past. How might we apply these words wrongly? Well, often it involves taking them in a very absolute sense and applying them to every situation we face as Christians. Basically, under no conditions can a Christian defend themselves from others who mean us harm. But, you know, when soldiers, military personnel, approached John the Baptist just back in Luke 3.14, and they were seeking to genuinely repent of their sins, John didn't tell them, well, in order to do that, and honor God, you must resign your commission. You must stop being soldiers. In John's mind, it was fine to be part of a military force and to know Jesus as Lord. And Paul maintains that line in Romans 13, speaking of how, in general, ruling authorities over the nations have been established by God in order to keep order in society. But if Christians cannot defend themselves under any circumstances against their enemies, then what's a Christian soldier supposed to do? It's pretty useless 
if he lays down his weapon every time he is threatened. Now, Jesus' examples here are given at a personal, not a professional level. They do not concern hostilities between nations or the forces that fight within them, Christian or otherwise. But even on a personal level, if we take these words to apply in every and all circumstance, well, that would mean it would leave many Christians subject to severe trauma, starvation, and at worst, lethal harm, without any hope for common defense, whilst our persecutors, whether slanderers or thieves or or murderers, would just continue wallowing in their sins and getting away with it. And that's not Jesus' intention here either. He's not removing our rights of lawful protection under all circumstances. You see, sometimes the loving thing to do will be to bring our enemies to justice, to restrain the harm they would otherwise bring to others as well as themselves in their crimes. Example of that, we have in Acts 22, the Apostle Paul invokes his rights as a Roman citizen to protect himself from further harm at the hands of his enemies. Thankfully, for the moment, we live in a fairly ordered society in which God has placed governing authorities and courts at our disposal for us to appeal to when we are seriously wronged. If we or those that we love are at risk of serious harm and our opportunities to bring our opponents to repentance are limited, we are not prohibited as Christians from seeking legal aid. We are to deal with those kinds of situations wisely out of love both for the victim and for our opponent. Even in our charity, we're to be wise in the way in which we love others as Christians. You know, I remember being warned once when I was back in Oxford when I was studying. I was told uh, by others who have been there for longer, Tim, be very careful when you give money, or be very careful about even thinking about giving money to the beggars on the streets in this city. They said very often it's the equivalent of putting razor blades in the hands of babies because many of them were drug addicts. And if you gave money to them, all you'd be doing is fueling their harmful addiction. That's not a loving thing to do. Better to give them food rather than a further means of killing themselves. To love anyone well, even our enemies, especially our enemies, means to love them them wisely. Now, having said that, that doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus is calling us to love those who oppose us in a radical way self-sacrificial way. So how do we apply these words rightly? Jesus sums it up for us in what's become known as the golden rule. Have a look in verse 31. Verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Well, for a start then, we're given no room for personal retaliation. When we're wronged, it's not that when I'm slapped, I can slap back. It's not that when I'm cursed, I can just curse back. It's not that when I'm cheated, I can cheat my neighbor in return because they cheated me. More than that, Jesus is saying on top of not retaliating personally in a vengeful way, instead, you're to make the most of any opportunity you have to serve your enemy in love. Over and above a desire to get even with them. To even make yourself vulnerable to them if it means you can love them further. 
You know, I mentioned the Apostle Paul earlier, how on one occasion he did invoke his rights to protect himself. But when he sees an opportunity to further serve those who are persecuting him, he takes a totally different approach. In Acts 14, we're told about his visit to the city of Lystra on one of his missionary journeys. And as he enters into this city, at first he's given a very warm reception. And yet then some angry Jews arrive and they stir up the city against him to the point that the city stones him, throws rocks at him with the intention to kill him. You know, personal hatred doesn't get much more personal than that. They drag him outside the city, they dump him just outside the city wall, and they think they've left him for dead. He's not dead. group of disciples, they come up, they stand around him, they help him to his feet. What does he do? Does he curse Lystra for the way that they've treated him? Does he gather up rocks with those fellow disciples and just wait for a rematch? No. He simply gets up, wounded, and he walks back into the city full of the folk who were trying to kill him for the gospel that he preached, exposing himself to further harm. Paul offered them the other cheek. He offered them the opportunity to stone him again in order that he might serve them, in order that he might share the good news of Christ with them, that they might be saved. Paul treated his enemies better than they deserved. It's exactly what Jesus is calling us to do here. He doesn't just tell us to live this way. He motivates us as well, though. We've got two great motivations because this is hard. We all know it's going to be really hard. What are the motivations that we have to desire to do this, to, to love our enemies when they afflict us? Well, the first one is negative. Jesus basically says, when we fail to treat our enemies in this way as Christians, we are actually showing ourselves to be no different from the world around us that does not know Christ. Why do we love this way? Firstly, because our world doesn't. Uh, Jesus puts these three rhetorical questions to the disciples in terms of loving, doing good, and lending our possessions without the concern to get them back. We'll just look at one of them in verse 32. Jesus asked him this rhetorical question, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? He's saying if our love is restricted only to those who love us and not to our enemies that would hurt us, then actually there's no real benefit for us as Christians. There's nothing inherently Christian about that attitude. As Jesus goes on to say, he qualifies it. Again, verse 32, for even sinners love those who love them. And he's using that term sinners there to describe those who are outside the kingdom of God, who don't know God, who don't know life with God through his son. Even sinners love those who love them. I love you. You love me. We're best friends like friends can be with a great big hug and a kiss from me to you. Won't you say you love me too? That's what my son hears every time that monstrosity, which is Barney the purple dinosaur, comes on TV. I love you. You love me. Won't you say you love me too? My son Josiah will never, ever hear Barney the dinosaur sing, 
I love you, you hate me, but I'll love you anyway. That kind of love doesn't make sense in our world. A world that is out of relationship with God and worships the present things, the created order, what is in the here and the now instead. A world that is very much at heart living for the moment. Living for the here and now. And if that is our attitude, even as Christians, well then loving our enemies, seeking the good of those who harm us, allowing others to take our property and being more concerned to serve their needs than getting our stuff back, remaining vulnerable to further violence or theft, that will make no sense. If, like the world, we believe that this life is all we have to live for, It's generally the way our world sees life. Live for the moment. And that is exactly Jesus' point. Sinners live this way. But we as his disciples are to know better. As those who have come to know Christ as our Savior and Lord, we know that there is a far greater benefit, a far greater prize to live for over and above the comforts of the here and now. God has brought us in his great love from being dead in sin, dead to him, to having a life with him now and forevermore. So that we no longer need to build the security of our lives on things that will fade away. We comprise an eternal dwelling, a place in his kingdom, back in the presence of the God that we were made to know and love, made to find our peace in. And so we're not to be chiefly concerned with what benefits us now, in the merely in the here and now. Jesus says, there's no benefit for you in that attitude as my followers. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. It doesn't build us up for eternal life. It doesn't grow us in godliness. It's what sinners do. We'll be no different. No, we're to prize our future with him over and above our well-being in the here and now. And that will free us up to love our enemies even at great cost. As we focus on the promises we have in Christ not the brief comforts of this life. That brings us on to Jesus' other motivation for loving our enemies. The second why, not only because the world doesn't, but because our Heavenly Father does. Because our Heavenly Father does. Verse 35. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. As we love our enemies, as we seek their good in a humble and charitable manner, well, Jesus gives us these two incredible promises. Firstly, our reward will be great. Our reward will, not might, will be great. Whatever we sacrifice for the sake of Christ and his gospel in this life, even as we suffer at the hands of those who would harm us, For their sakes, it will be worth it. Now, some believe here that heavenly rewards, uh, they're concerned with further blessings that Jesus will bestow on those who have sacrificed much for him in obedience in this life. Loving their enemies at great cost, becoming destitute and harmed as a result. 
that they will experience a greater experience of God's blessings in eternity. And that might be the case, but it may be that the reward Jesus has in mind here is closely linked with the second promise. Verse 35, and you will be sons of the Most High. You will be sons of the Most High. Cookie cutter Tim. A chip off the old block. That's how some of the mums have described my son Josiah over the past couple of years as they've seen him playing with their uh, sons and daughters in creche. They've noticed he's quite tall compared to the other kids his age. You might get that from me. But they've also noticed that when Josiah smiles, well, he has my smile. They say, I really see Tim in him when he smiles. And I wish that the family likeness, the way in which he resembles me, remains always that positive, but it doesn't. (laughs) It seems he's picked up a certain habit of mine from when he was very young, as can be displayed there. It's true, there's some very serious nose-digging that runs on the male side of the family, to my wife's continual frustration. I pick my nose. Josiah picks his nose. As we love our enemies, we show ourselves to be sons, daughters of our heavenly Father. We show ourselves to be chips off the old block. We bear the family likeness. As Jesus said, for he... Our Heavenly Father is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Friends, the only way we will be truly able to love our enemies in the way Jesus is telling us to do here is if we ourselves know the mercy that God has shown us. It's not that if we obey these things with all our effort, God is going to then love us in return and bless us. No, loving our enemies is the humble response that we make as those whom God has shown greater mercy. So we must look. If we are to love our enemies in this way, the only way we're going to do it is if we look all the more to Christ in whom we have been shown the Father's love. Christ, who loved us, his enemies, perfectly. Who not only humbled himself by taking on flesh, though he was the Son of God, equal with God, but he came into our creation willing to be ridiculed, beaten, and put to death at the hands of his own creation that hated him. Sinners like us who instinctively reject Jesus as Lord until we're given eyes to see him. Sinners whom he came in love to save and to give his everything for. As we read in Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When Jesus was unjustly slapped around the face, At his trial before his execution, he didn't raise one finger. As the Son of God, he could have called for a thousand angels to level his opponents 
in a split second, and yet he desired the good of those who beat him in accordance with his father's will. And that led ultimately to his death in which he endured the agony of separation from the father that he had known for all eternity. Every bit of hate, every wrongful retaliation, every expression of self-centered rage that I am guilty of put on him. Washed away by his blood. Shed for me. Why? Love. That's it. Because he, in his mercy and grace, and in obedience to the Father, honoring the Father's will, chose to love me, an enemy, when I hated him. Do you know this love? O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood... To every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. None of us are worthy to stand before God in our sin, but Jesus, who alone was, stood in our place. That we might be forgiven our every sin. That we might be received with open arms again by the God we were made to know and have life with. Won't you come to know him and know that joy and that peace of sins forgiven that Christ alone can offer? If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, won't you do that? For those of us who have, what does he call us as his disciples to do? To bear the family likeness. To treat our enemies better than they deserve because that's how he's treated us who used to hate him and deny him. As Lord. And as we let that great truth sink down deep into our hearts, then and only then will we desire to love those who insult us again and again. Will we continue to serve those work colleagues that ostracize us, that keep us out of certain groups because they think our faith is weird and stupid? Will we continue to serve and love family members that have humiliated us and rejected us because we stand with Jesus over and against them when necessary? Even when the verbal attacks become physical, as we rejoice in the love God has shown us in his Son, only then will we respond to hatred with humility, to cheating with charity, yearning to see those who hate us for Christ's sake, Come to know him and have life in his name. And I witnessed a beautiful example of this just a few months ago. A member of our pastoral team here at St. Mary's was attacked after one of the services. And I was asked to salvage the CCTV recording. And so I witnessed what took place on the screen. I watched my fellow pastor being beaten hard again and again and again. And all he sought to do was block the blows as others rushed to his aid. He had no concern to fight back. He didn't throw one punch in retaliation. He was humble and merciful, merciful, even though, wait for wait, he could have taken on the guy. More than that, since that incident, I have not heard my brother say one wrong word against that man. 
Not one one wrong word in my presence. No whining, no name-calling, nothing. In fact, quite the opposite. He's actively been working with the rest of the pastoral team to determine how best we can serve this guy and his family in love. And he's still working on it months after he was attacked. And I suspect, I don't know, but I don't doubt that he's been on his knees praying for that guy as well. Now that brother... That fellow pastor is one who is treating his enemies better than they deserve because he believes deep down that God has treated him far better than he deserves. And now he's seeking to honor the father who has loved him so greatly when he was his enemy. Well, brothers and sisters, may we be the same. May we be those who offer the other cheek, who give charitably of what we have, who love others not by the standards of our world, but treat our enemies far better than they deserve because of our joy that is set on Jesus, who laid down his life for us, his enemies, that we might live. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that so often it cuts down deep into our hearts. It reveals our thoughts, our inclinations. And it is a hard word. It exposes our sinful tendencies. But in order that we might repent of them, that we might pursue Christ in the light, not only of his example, but of the great love that he has shown us and you have shown us in him. Father, this is a hard word. We are so slow to love our enemies. We instinctively don't want to. And so I pray that in the light of what you have spoken by your word today, you would be at work in our hearts and minds. You would be helping us to look continually to Christ and you would help us to know more and more just how greatly you have loved us, your enemies, that we might have the hope of forgiveness and eternal life, that that would shape the way in which we treat those who would oppose us and that that would testify as we behave that way to the fact that we are sons of you, our Heavenly Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.